0: This week on Making Contact, we focus our show on different community efforts to reclaim economic agency. It's a response for critical survival, especially in communities historically left behind by economic institutions. I'm your host, RJ Lozada. We're along a main drag in Oakland, California, called International Boulevard. It's part of the neighborhood called Lower San Antonio. The demographic is historically blue-collar migrant people of color queer and trans so you've got mom and pop shops like lao and vietnamese restaurants you've got auto mechanics and other small services you've got homes with facades full of age and character and then there's this set of spaces that line a small area of 23rd and international and eddie oda of cycles of change and Devi peacock of liberating ourselves locally and peacock rebellion are taking me around. It's four storefronts and eight apartments on the second story. They share a large swath of land in the back, which is used for farming and
1: gardening. It's big. Yeah. Um, An interesting story is that this space, this lot right here used to be a uh, dry cleaning facility. And so As we're going through inspections and stuff to buy the building, one of the red flags that came up was the fact that this was a dry cleaning facility. And so they wanted to test the toxicity of the soil. So they went down 25 feet. They were, like, trying to figure out, like if there's any toxic chemicals still left from it. And like, through that whole process, I was like, the power of the plum tree, the power of the plum tree, look how huge it is. It's gotta be that huge under the ground. And so, you know, it's gotta be like, taking out all the toxins, I mean, over the years. And the inspections actually came out pretty clean.
0: That's kind of a a little miracle, just because dry cleaning's like, got abrasive
1: chemicals. yeah. Yeah, hella toxic.
0: So the landlord of the set of storefronts and apartments was planning to put the property up for sale. But before she did, she sent an email out to the residents and organizations. But instead of giving them a heads up for a possible eviction, she invited them to consider purchasing the property and land. So after some quick thinking, the groups organized a short crowdfunding campaign and raised close to $90,000. A significant portion of that was put forward as a down payment for the properties. Here's Eddie.
1: Similar to Debbie, I felt really excited and happy um, and supported by community and lifted up, really, like, lifted up. Um, And at the same time, it's like, well, this is only phase one. (laughs) We still got to figure out (laughs) self-management. Which, you know, um, if we want to be realistic about, like, what that will take... Uh, It will either take a lot of volunteering on the part of residents or we raise funds so that we can pay ourselves to do this stuff, Um, which I think uh, is possible. I think it's important for us to sustain ourselves, um, especially given like most folks here are low income.
0: And on top of that, they'll need to prepare for cooperative ownership and management. Yet Eddie and Devi are hopefully and justifiably optimistic.
2: You know, we're, we're a unified force of of people. And, and I think this piece around like interdependence, is like, no, we really need each other. And it's not just lip service, like we actually really need each other. Like how many times, like, you know, in these things like um like Eddie, like how many times was I like crying at the end being like, how are we gonna do this? But it's like it's true. It's like, you know, like thinking about the the really long-term picture, it's like you know, 10, 20 years from now, like, we're going to own the building. Like, we're going to own the building, you know, and the land is going to be in community forever. Absolutely. There there have been these moments where I'm like, can we really pull this off? Like, you know, being like, can we really pull this off? Uh, This whole real estate world, it's like, they're so complex that it's like, oh, yeah, Absolutely, this system was set up for us to never be able to access it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this has been set up to destroy us. Absolutely, there are allies who've come. You know, to be and like getting clarity on like who is it, who are folks who want to jump on to something because it seems shiny or sexy, and then but who are the folks who actually are really or who want to be a savior versus the people who are like in solidarity. And I will say that like with Steve and the Oakland Community Land Trust, they were very much about like no, we're in solidarity. We want to hear. What is the, like, take leadership from the people on the block about how we want to do things. And that is, like, you know, taking the years to, like, develop our collective leadership model. We're going to take our time to figure that out. They're going to give us some support. You know, we can't rush in all the time because we also, they have to have um, time to build the relationships of trust
0: with each other. To find out more information on the liberation of 23rd Avenue, go to our website at radioproject.org. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Making Contact. Today we're visiting community-rooted enterprises where people are rethinking power and participation in their lives. Collective housing and cultural co-ops, land trusts and community banks are providing fundamental shifts in our workplaces and living spaces. To connect hundreds of these efforts, networks have emerged. The New Economy Coalition brings together groups that value environmental sustainability and racial justice, along with community ownership. In May of 2017, the New Economy Coalition held a panel discussion in Chicago about building alternative economic institutions as part of a broader movement strategy. We bring you some excerpts from that discussion. You'll first hear from Amara Enia, who is a public policy expert on city and state policies, especially regarding education and economic development, and in 2015, ran for mayor in Chicago.
3: So it was interesting. I I didn't didn't know it was a new economy platform at the time I was running. (laughs) So now there's a, a, a label or a name that I can attach to uh, the policies that I was putting forth when I ran. So I ran for mayor of Chicago in uh, 20, the 2015 election cycle. Um, I was the first person that came out to challenge the incumbent. Uh, had never run for political office before, ever. Um, didn't really work on too many campaigns, really hardly any. Um, But had worked in the mayor's office under the previous administration and through that vantage point had really seen and was very intentional about working there because I wanted to understand who is making these decisions, who's making these decisions, why is it that the city is operating the way that it is and so for me, um, you go into I guess the the belly of the beast and you learn and you study. Uh, so that you can understand how to dismantle that very system that you know doesn't work i really didn't even care about this mayor because it's not about the person you just represent a certain system and a philosophy and a worldview. but the best way to counter that is to put forth tangible alternatives so it's not enough for me to just say well you know we don't have jobs okay that's like you go into a restaurant and say i'm hungry what are you going to get right they'll ask you what do you want so a lot of the policies that I put forward, I talked about worker-owned cooperatives, because if you don't expand the economic ecosystem, we will never move forward and have the kind of economy that is inclusive and that would actually support this city. And it's not because it's in just my best interest or even the interest of communities of color, it's actually in the best interest of the city as a whole, of the region, and we have to make that point. Right? So a lot of, when we talk about many of these things, whether it's work on co-ops or a financial transaction tax, who would imagine that making sure that we cut down on the detrimental, high-frequency trading that crashed the economy and actually making them pay their fair share of taxes would actually help what we call the billions of dollars in budget shortfall that we have. But it seems so far-fetched when you look at it from the mainstream. When I talk about a public bank, who would imagine a financial institution that actually works for taxpayers, that the goal is actually economic development? And that it's possible. And that there are examples that work elsewhere. Why wouldn't we push for that? These are the things that I was talking about back in 2013, 2014, as the 30-year-old, chick from the west side who doesn't believe that we should be afraid to challenge a system and systems that don't work. But what made it difficult and what I found myself doing was educating people. The exposure is really the first step. So I knew how I felt about cooperative economic models, but you have to translate that to people who have never been familiar with the concept. So my campaigning was less about why I'm the best person and more about how do I empower people? How do we empower ourselves so that we articulate what models are best for the city? And how do we make sure that we demonstrate that this isn't some charity project? That we're not asking for programmatic enhancements, and I'm using typical public policy jargon. Programmatic enhancements because it's out of the benevolence of those in leadership. But we have to prove that when you've lost 200,000 residents in 10 years, 180,000 of whom were black, you've lost a significant portion of your tax base. So when you're talking about how broke you are, think about all the homeowners that are no longer here. When the redlining continues with traditional banks, so you can't start your small business, How many people are not hired in our communities because that small business, that entrepreneur couldn't open their small business? And you're not getting the tax revenue from those businesses. So we have to think about not just the human element, but if you can't even make the human argument that this is actually good for us as people, at the very least you make the fiscal argument of why we have to move in this direction there's a certain level of education and exposure that has to take place. So that when the next candidate who comes along says something about a housing cooperative or a land trust, people's eyes aren't glazed over. (laughs) You actually have people who have heard about it and who can be excited about it and who recognize that this isn't necessarily just about the person. It's about the quality of life of the residents of the city. And so that actually paves the way for other candidates. I recognized, and I said earlier that I was raised a certain way, so the idea of challenging the mayor didn't seem extraordinary to me. I I I live in Garfield Park. So the issues that you know happen in Chicago, when I walk outside my door every single day, I'm faced with. And I have a certain level of intolerance and a certain level of impatience about how things are and why things are the way they are. And that intolerance and that impatience compels me to do something within the realm of what my purpose is, which happens to be in the space of public policy and apparently politics, because I was never the aspirational politician. I wasn't even a great campaigner, I don't think. (laughs) But that's the space that I was thrust into. But I always said, imagine if we had whole communities where you had people who running for mayor wasn't extraordinary, especially for girls that look like me, for young people who are constantly getting the reinforced message that they are not valued. They get it every day, whether it's through the vacant buildings on the block, the vacant homes, the rejections for uh, access to capital, the uh, shutting down of their schools, of all of the anchor institutions in their communities. Every single day they get a message that reinforces the fact that they are not valued here and that they don't have power. But imagine if they believed that they had power. Imagine the same level of intolerance to the status quo. That's what a movement is. And so it was never about me, I just played my role. I play my part, but the more people are exposed to the concepts that we're talking about here and the alternatives that they can put forth as opposed to just accepting what they tell us is possible.
0: Harper Bishop is a member of Open Buffalo in upstate New York. Open Buffalo is a collaboration between several diverse groups and allies. They run initiatives directly addressing recidivism, local economic development, and leadership. In the following clip, Bishop responds to working outside the nonprofit industrial complex. That I wanted to answer this in a very specific way,
4: I thought about uh, earlier today. And first of all, as a white person, um, it's important that I explicitly always state that Black Lives Matter, and uh, they do and I live my life as such, and I organize as such, and so that's just really important. And So one of the things that we talked about was, you know, where we we're hearing significant um, you know, silence right now is from both the establishment of politics um, and, and the power structure. And right now in Buffalo, there is a significant conversation happening about police brutality, and it's more than a conversation. In the last 100 days in Buffalo, there are two black men who have died in the hands of the BPD, and their, their names should be hashtags at this point. The only difference is that you don't know their names, Mordell Meech Davis who died in police custody, and then very recently Jose Hernandez uh, actually died literally at the hands of the Buffalo Police Department. And so when we talk about um, coalition building and structures and the build out of ecosystems, There are things that I can't do at my nine to five at Open Buffalo because of power structures, because of social capital, because of philanthropic obligations, and I'm pretty straightforward about the fact that that's true. Um, We do have a campaign for justice and opportunity and that it is addressing some of these issues, but it's reformist at best, right? And there are a lot of uh, young, radical people of color who are ready to make moves and we need them to make moves, honestly. Um, And Just Resisting is an ecosystem that's being built out and that they've done direct actions um, on the mayor um, during his State of the City, and it brought this forth to him, and so there's also organizations like Queers for Racial Justice, which I hope to co-found, and Showing Up for Racial Justice, which, which is a national organization that o- organizes white people for racial justice. They're also jumping into this conversation, and they're not waiting for the Open Buffaloes and the 501c3s and all those, and film, uh, philanthropic dollars to follow them. Uh, They're working outside of the system, they're expanding the system, and and quite frankly, they make my job a lot easier because when the mayor gets to decide whether or not he wants to step forward, he looks at my proposal, he looks at their proposal, and my proposal becomes a lot more palatable, and uh, just quite frankly, and he knows that wherever he goes at this point, that he's going to be shouted down by um, a lot of people, and so whereas I respect everything that's been talked about in the resist build, I think that it's a simultaneously happening that we have people who are out there on the streets resisting and calling out the powers to be where they need to, and then we have folks who are also offering long-term solutions, like I just talked about. Um, you know, the community land trust, will, which will exist, you know, for generations to come. And so that work both needs to happen. Knowing when we go hard on one, or when someone else is playing a different uh, role um, in a different role, and actually not fighting them on that, but saying we're making we're doing complementary. Uh, Things and that we're building this out together and being strategic and we're talking to one another about what how this might move forward Um, I think that that is something I want to bring to a national audience because in Buffalo We really need your assistance in calling out the fact that we you know that there are two young black men who are not part of my community
0: tonight Julia Ho came to represent Solidarity Economy St. Louis, a network of groups and individuals focused on growing and practicing a solidarity economic framework, espousing justice, self-determination, and other values that run counter to a model that pits people and groups against each other. Here, Julia sets the backdrop starting with Ferguson.
5: I guess important context for the organizing in St. Louis aside from the Ferguson uprising, which most people are aware of, but people, um, I think mainstream media was very conscious about separating the issues that were happening in Ferguson to the St. Louis area and not recognizing the history of the fact that St. Louis is one of the most, I'll say openly racially segregated cities in the country, um, most starkly racially segregated cities in the country. and also has a a strong legacy of resistance Um, and also of thriving black communities and thriving black neighborhoods which were in some ways destroyed by white flight um, and also by integration. Um, And so all of that to say is that uh, our work in St. Louis has shifted in so many different ways over the last three years. and uh, to be honest and perfectly upfront with you guys, like our very first iteration of Solidarity Economy St. Louis um, was an outgrowth of a, a project of a uh, kind of the post-ACORN organization, St. Louis, called More Missourians Organizing for Reform and Empowerment, which at that point had been um, primarily a direct action organization um, focused at the uh, intersection of climate, racial, economic justice, but who really worked to support movement moments. So, uh, you know, the foreclosure crisis in 2008, um, Occupy in 2011, and then, of course, the Ferguson uprising in 2014. Um, and so as a project within that, uh, one of the first, um, our very first iteration of Solidarity Economy St. Louis was really, uh, it was a bunch of 20, 30 something white people working on environmental and sustainability um, nonprofits and um, very quickly you know, we made a decision that that was not the direction that we wanted to go in. Um, and so what we shifted our work to do was to actually support campaigns that were fighting uh, the criminalization of poverty, which in St. Louis um, is sort of one of the most visible ways that's manifested is that people are routinely locked in cages for not having enough money to pay Uh, a fine for a traffic violation or a, you know, very simple or part of the fragmentation of the St. Louis region results in the fact that we have 91 independently governed municipalities in our county, um, one of which is Ferguson. And so you think about what happened in Ferguson, there are 90 other Fergusons um, very nearby and which very much have the same issues. And so you're talking about 90 municipalities that have their own police department, that have their own court system. And if you're a person who has to drive through those municipalities to get to work, you have the potential to get like five tickets for the same thing, um, on your way to work and on your way back. And you miss one of your court dates, you got a warrant. So um, that was the issue that we that we really um, kind of uh, that we really propelled ourselves into. And that was just a few months before Mike Brown was killed, before um, this sort of got launched into a national issue. Um, And so that's where our work evolves from. That's the context of what we do. And I think now, coming up on almost three years after that, we're in a very, uh, I think, a natural evolution of that moment where we are working to grow um, a a network um, of groups of individuals, and we um, very intentionally define groups in a very loose way. We're not just talking about established organizations, the typical community organizations that come to coalitions. We're talking about um, informal collectives of people, houses of folks. We're talking about gardeners and farmers. We're talking about artist collectives, um, we're small businesses, which are often left out of these conversations as well. and so. Um, We are very broadly defining what it means to form that community um, and trying to, I think, uh, do two very distinct things. One of which is to provide an avenue and a way for any individual um, who feels like they have resources and they want to align those with their values. And you're a person who knows that you're spending your money every day somewhere and you feel like you want to spend it somewhere that, that counts. And so we want to provide an avenue for that, and we want to provide an avenue for people to build with each other on that level. But um, at the same time, we also need to recognize that many of the institutions in which our members want to invest in don't exist yet, um, and some of those, you know, I would love to be able to shop at a nearby black owned grocery store that served like healthy, affordable, locally sourced food. Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't exist yet. And so what we have to do is be very intentional about finding the people who are building those alternatives and investing in them. Um, And that doesn't mean just monetary investment, it means um, really uh, putting ourselves at, you know, creating some mutual risk and some mutual stake in manifesting that vision. So um, so we're really working to uh, see those projects emerge, and I think where St. Louis is right now is that we're in a very interesting moment where so many um, of those projects are coming from all different places. And many of the Ferguson uh, organizers or people who are really involved in that movement are now shifting towards these models of of cooperative economics. And even if they're not calling it the solidarity economy, we have to be um, very intentional about seeking those folks out, about building relationships with them and supporting them in very tangible ways. So that's a little bit about what we're doing.
0: Cooperation Jackson out of Jackson, Mississippi, has an incredible history of economic justice developed by the New Afrikan People's Organization and Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, building upon the Jackson-Cush Plan, an agenda to generate wealth and redistribute it equitably on the principles of cooperation, sharing, solidarity, and democracy. Aya Ifalola Omobola sets the context for Cooperation Jackson.
6: One day I found myself in Jackson, Mississippi, Um, and I'm I'm glad that that ended up that way. So what we're doing in Jackson is looking at uh, alternative ways of uh, being able to provide a future for ourselves, provide a future for our city, provide a future for our country and provide a future for our earth. And so some of the ways in which we have done this began a long time ago. There were visions that had been um, created to uh, find a way for us as a people to come together to reestablish ourselves, to understand who we are, to get back in touch with our roots, to be able to understand what it was that we needed to do based on those things that we had been taught initially from conception, day one, uh, of our ancestors. And so what that entailed was learning how to work together cooperatively and be able to take our own um, initiatives into creating economic situations, uh, sustainable situations, and uh, governance as far as our our people were concerned. So Cooperation Jackson was a uh, mindset, a focus that had been long in the making. Uh, And it's actually modeled after Madrigan uh, Spain's uh, cooperative movement. Uh, But it was a vision that Shokwe Lumumba, our late uh, mayor of uh, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, had brought to the forefront. Um, Upon his passing, we had a, a Convention we had a conference called Jackson Rising and at that point even though it looked as if we were not going to be able to Have that conference we were able to announce to uh, the city and the world that cooperation Jackson was indeed uh, being formed and that our platform was looking at creating worker owner cooperatives which are businesses where the owners operate govern and uh, sustain those businesses and uh, to find ways of becoming um a solidarity, sustainable human rights uh, uh, initiative. So we worked on creating some emerging cooperatives. um, And at this moment, we have Freedom Farms, which is a uh, worker-owner agricultural farm that's in the back of uh, the center. We have a Nubius Place Cafe cafeteria, which is uh, uh, catering, which is a um, worker-owner situation that uses the produce from the farm. And then we have Green Team uh, Cooperative, which is uh, dealing with landscaping and composting, which uses the refuse from Nubia's Place to go to the farm. So we're beginning this model of this integral, uh relationship that begins, begins to show how we can become self-sustainable. These are things that we have somehow been forgotten or have been taught to forget that we have the initiatives and the abilities to be able to do. The, the, Difficult thing about all of this is that we have been dummied down so badly that we have been taught that we have to depend on outside structure, outside governance. We have to depend on others to teach us what it means to be human, what it needs to be means to be uh, cooperative, what it means to be take the initiative of our own to move forward. And these are the models, and these are some of the things that we're uh, trying to set forward.
0: And that's it for this week's Making Contact. Have you been rethinking about your relationship to money? More specifically, are you thinking about the possibilities of participating in a co-op or seeking ways to reconcile justice and economics? Let us know. You can reach us at our website at radioproject.org. This program was produced with support from the New Economies Reporting Project, funded with a grant from the Park Foundation. Special thanks to Rachel Dixon for recording panelists in Chicago. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Marie Che, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager. And Vera Teicholsker is our development associate. I'm your host, RJ Lozada, and thank you for listening to Making Contact.